This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Wild Olive, where we host game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. I'm Jennifer Bird, a biblical scholar. And I'm Jean Patrol, a literature scholar. If you want to change your Bible reading game, you can try reading the Bible as literature. The way writers such as Emily Dickinson, Octavia Butler, Ursula Le Guin, James Baldwin, or Tony Kushner do. Every other week, we let modern writers give a fresh take on a familiar Bible story. Did you know that Emily Dickinson uses woman by the well imagery to explore lesbian desire? (laughs) That's wild. And doesn't June Jordan use a Gospel of Matthew image to describe the civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer? Yes. And Tony Kushner's Angels in America uses apocalypse imagery to describe the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's wild. If you like conversations about the Bible that could go anywhere, tune in to Wild Olive wherever you get your podcasts. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church. With John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. Say that. Say that again. Just say that's just Nat Turney. That sounds like a like a celebrity name, doesn't it? No, no, it doesn't. No, it, it, doesn't. it doesn't. It really, it really <laughs> doesn't. Just, no. It rolls off the tongue. It I mean, sounds like the, actually the best you get is like what the Adventures of Natty Gan. No, no, no. <laughs> I get better than that. I get um, I get Nat Turner. An awful uh, lot. And then, okay, and, okay, okay. And then, yes. I, and then I have people wondering if I was named for him, and I'm like, yes, absolutely. Or, or, my parents, or Nat, Nat King Gold. Yeah, mm-hmm. my parents were, were hardcore abolitionists, and so therefore <laughs> I have the honorific. No, I don't know how I ended up with that moniker, but it doesn't matter because I haven't even said the name of the podcast yet. Because once again, John, John, <laughs> no, there we, do, we digress. My brother John is with me as always. Say hi, John. Hi, John. There we go. Thank you for doing your part as the uh, the straight man of the group. But we are here with another awesome episode of This Is Not Church, because if it was church, you'd have left by now. So brought to you by our friends at Choircast. I should just start putting that instead of having to run. <laughs> Who brought you such amazing things as Heretic Happy Hour, Apostates Anonymous, and Ideas Digest. See, we don't need the pre, like the canned recording. The new evangelicals. The New Evangelicals, that's another podcast that has joined our network. Messy Spirituality Podcast. I, how do I always forget Jason's podcast? He's going to start thinking. I don't know. At some, point, at some point, Jason's going to come after you. Yeah, well, he should. He's, he should be, at this point, should be taking offense. But um, anyway, we're here with, uh, with, a, with an awesome guest. We are, we're just going to jump headfirst into what I hope will be. Um, I don't hope. I'm confident will be an awesome conversation. So Isaac B. Sharp is with us today. He's the director of online and part-time programs and a visiting assistant professor at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York, or in Espanol, Nueva York. Um, Did you know that, John? Nueva York. That's how they say it. Um, In the city of New York. He is the co-editor. Don't make me do the rest of this in Spanish, brother. You know. I know you can. I know you can. I can. It'll be awkward for all of us. Um, Anyway, as I was saying, he is the co-editor of Evangelical Ethics, a reader in the Library of Theological Ethics series, as well as Christian Ethics in Conversation. He is the author of a new book called uh, The Other Evangelicals. And on the cover of the book, you might see the word other scrawled out. Um, I think there's probably a point to that. So maybe we'll explore that. But yeah, it'll be coming out in April of this year, I believe. So that's uh, that's all we have to say about that. <laughs> Another amazing segue, John. Yeah, you're so um, good at these. I'm, I actually went to school for this. I can how tell. To, how, to, how, to, how to deliver awkward segues. And that's uh, that's all we have to say about that. So welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? 
Yeah, very good. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is, uh, uh, other than my uh, brief technical difficulty, uh, hopefully we won't have to do that again. Uh, yeah, no worries. Very excited to be here. Joan and I are well-versed in technical difficulties, <laughs> having caused most of them um, so far. So um, we know how to come back from those. But yeah, we're, we're, we're glad you're with us. Um, there's a lot to talk about. Your book um, is, is substantial. Uh, I'll say that much. Um, and I mean that in the positive, in the, in the positive way. I don't, it is a, it's, a, it's a large book. Um, so that means it's going to be densely packed. It's, it's more of an academic work. Is that correct? But John said it was pretty accessible, but it's, is that meant to be more of an academic style work? Yeah. So the, uh, yes, and I would say it's pieces carved out of my dissertation. Okay. Which was even more substantial is the, would be the diplomatic way to put it. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> incredibly long and sprawling dissertation, uh, which included, uh, several other chapters about other 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 evangelicals uh, that didn't make it into the cut for the book but the uh, as, as as we chatted a, a bit about it is academic but I hope accessible I committed from the outset as I was putting all the work in uh, to this thing that I wanted it to be accessible so always was aiming in the crafting of the prose uh, to avoid the big, long technical, you know, technical jargony kind of stuff. And the folks at Urbans were super helpful in helping me pare it down into something that is, I think, going to be pretty accessible for uh, your av- average interested reader. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I should have mentioned too that I often forget to read the subtitles to books. And so your subtitle is, is compelling, right? So... Um, Again, it's the story of liberal, black, progressive, feminist, and gay Christians and the movement that pushed them out. And so having not read as much of the book as my brother has, because as we discussed offline, sometimes the books arrive when I'm traveling. And so um, my guess would be we're going to draw, we're going to be drawing a pretty good distinction between what we might think of as evangelicals today and perhaps what, what traditionally have been evangelicals and how they have how they've, how, I think I would say how they've managed to homogenize that group and get rid of all these disparate, so, you know, quote unquote others. Am I anywhere close to the, to the meat of that? Yeah. So the, actually the, the, um, title and subtitle of the dissertation, comically enough, if you can find it, it, it you should. And if not, I'll send it to you. It's a, it, uh, and I did this thing with it and my advisor w- w- ran with it. And I'm glad. There was this trend back in, it was like a 19th century thing in these books where people would make the entire argument of the book in the title, you know, the so-and-so, blah, 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 or why this happened, blah, blah, blah. And it's this big, long title. Uh, so I did that for the dissertation. It's, the title was even longer, but in the book, working with Erdman's, they uh, helped narrow it down to the subtitle, which is which actually, yeah, makes the argument, the subtitle of the book is a bit of the argument itself about various kinds of folks who had disparate visions of uh, what it meant to be evangelical, mainly across the 20th century in the U.S. context, and how they got written out of the story of what it means to be evangelical, and that over time, that helps explain uh, how what it means to be kind of capital E evangelical in the current context uh, became what it is. The motivation behind telling these stories is in part the recognition and realization that there were these folks out there who had this different vision of what it means to be evangelical or thought that they had the appropriate vision of what it meant to be evangelical, but ran afoul of the 
uh, gatekeepers on one or more issues, either uh, because of their theological, political, uh, social commitments, or in some cases, just because of who they were, that they could not jive with the kind of prevailing notion of what it meant to be evangelical in at, at, at any given point. And so they have, many of them have been forgotten by the history books. And so the, the effort here is a little bit of a re, re, retelling of their stories, uh, because I think it does shed light on contemporary um, understandings of what it means to be evangelical. Yeah, and it, we've we've had a we've had a, a handful of people over the over the last few months who um, have explored this idea. Um, Kristen Dumay comes to mind, and Beth Allison Barr, um, Diana Butler Bass, and a lot of them have drawn this sort of line of demarcation of without putting a specific date on it, but like you know, right around the time of the rise of the moral majority, right? Those folks come along, and they they and I I believe I mean I'm I believe religion's always been politicized. Um, I don't think there's been a time in, in, in our history where this hasn't been to some degree, but it seems like there was a, a foundational shift taking place right around that, that era. And I lived through it. John and I both did. I mean, I was, you know, at least a teenager, um, when I began to hear the rumblings of the moral majority, um, who my uncle, by the way, told me was neither moral nor the majority. So I thought that was pretty astute. But there, that, that, that began the transition, right? I mean, would you agree that that's sort of a transitioning line where we go from having an evangelical, which was a largely world, like a religious worldview, saying, hey, I have a job to do as an evangelical, which is to proclaim the, the good news of Christ and to talk about that, and then turning it into this political voting block that has, you know, like you, like you mentioned, like very strict gatekeepers and its own sort of orthodoxy and everything. What's your take on that? Yeah, there's the the rise of the moral majority, the religious right, this this kind of stuff that comes around in the 80s. Um, there's one of the chapters delves into that story of how evangelical identity became so politically partisan in the post-moral majority, such that by the end of the 20th century, to be capital E evangelical was to be republic, to be aligned with the uh, contemporary Republican Party in the U.S. That, that, that certainly was a turning point that happened with, um, the rise of the, of the moral majority of the religious right in the eighties. Although it, there were other aspects of the story that predate that. And some of the, um, stuff that I do in some of the chapters, traces things that were going on even pre-rise of the religious right. So there was, it definitely was a, the case that there was a political turning point. But as far back as the uh, kind of post-World War II rise of the neo-evangelical renaissance, there was already this kind of gatekeeping going on. And so this is part of the argument that I'm making, actually, is that it was actually the case that there were folks who would have, who could have been, would have classified themselves as theologically progressive, who would have still claimed evangelical identity, meaning that in their mind that they're faithful to the gospel, the good news, but they are more theologically progressive than the neo-evangelical, neo-fundamentalist folks. And those folks got defined out of the category very fast with the rise of the neo-evangelical movement post-World War II. So part of what I'm doing in the book is arguing that this gatekeeping thing around evangelical identity 
is kind of the whole game in 20th century in, in 20th century evangelical the formation of this identity that it actually began with this kind of gatekeeping around who was in and who was out and you see it explicitly with like the formation of groups like the National Association of Evangelicals the NAE uh, from the outset defines itself in opposition to those you know godless progressive Christians who are selling the faith because they're in the ecumenical movement, right? So it begins with this like denigration of um, other Christians as not evangelical, right? Us, the, in the formation of the NAE and some of these organizations, Christianity Today is another example, begins with this motivation that there are Christians out there who have betrayed what these gatekeepers believe is the gospel and that they have to be defined out of the category. So that you get it from the outset that this is going on. And the, the most, you know, the, the thing that most folks are, are most familiar with is the, the rise in the moral majority and the politicization. And that, I, I reiterate throughout the book, that that certainly is one of the key pieces and becomes the most one of the most determinative actually is that evangelical identity becomes more closely aligned with like contemporary political conservatism than almost anything else but i'm also arguing in the book that some of this line drawing and gatekeeping was going on even before that well i mean we also you also mentioned this 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 notion of the you know modernism right with the uh, the uh, the uh, the rise of darwinism um this idea that science has a place in all of this, right? So there is a movement within the church that some people accept this as part of the divine history. And then the, the other side's like, no, absolutely not. This is all you know, evil. It doesn't fit within the biblical narrative. So you can even go back farther, right, is to, uh, to this, this idea. And prior to that, this idea of evangelical, which we all know, traditionally and originally meant just you know preaching on the good news so there's this idea that there was this group of what we would call evangelicals that goes back quite a ways right i mean biblically and then there's this idea of modernism that steps in and says well hold on there's there's science here that says that some stuff's happening because of this you know and darwin starts showing us the origin of species and all that and then some of the church grabs onto that and says, yeah, I can, I can use this. And other parts of the church is like, absolutely not. This has nothing to do with the way the Bible speaks of how we create, we were created or how we came to be, right? A hundred percent. Right. And that's the, the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy that we're, we're dancing around now with the, uh, this idea of, um, Darwinism, but also, um, certain forms of biblical criticism, right? Of, 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 re, of historical critical methodologies and using that to better interpret the, the, the Bible. The most evangelical histories, at least of the 20th century evangelicalism, start there and, and rightfully so to say that, you know, fundamentalism is this sub-movement in evangelical spaces in response to modernism, to the rise of the idea of Darwinism and historical critical methodologies. And that this is the kind of dividing line that, that divides out in 20th century, specifically Protestantism in the U.S., that you get the evangelical fundamentalist side and then the modernist liberal side, and this side accepts science and historical criticism and this side doesn't. And part of what I'm doing, also doing with the book is complicating that a little bit. That it's actually more 
complex than just that kind of binary, such that there were folks who accepted uh, Darwinian evolution or historical critics historical critical methodologies as something that that they they, they could harmonize with their faith and. Uh, in certain cases of biblical scholars, like I do a little uh, profile of uh, uh, Union Seminary's own Charles Briggs, who believed that the historical critical method was strengthening to his evangelical faith, that it made the Bible more alive for him than ever before, right? And you get this dividing line in the retroactive history that says the fundamentalist rejected higher criticism and evangelicalism followed suit from there. And there is, there is truth to that. It, it always became, from there on out for the rest of the 20th century, anybody who started asking certain kinds of questions about the Bible would get pushed out. But part of what I'm doing is saying that it was more complicated at first around that there were folks who said, you know, no, I'm still committed to the gospel. I'm still committed to the good news. I just believe that the Historical critical method can help us understand the Bible better. Or I interpret the Genesis such that it is not impossible to reconcile a certain account of Genesis with the idea of Darwinian evolution. And that these folks um, get kind of relegated to one side of the 20th century uh, U.S. Christian story. And I'm doing a little bit of kind of... Muddy in the waters a little bit with some of that to say that these folks really, some of them to their dying day believe that they were as evangelical as any fundamentalist. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, and I think the I think the waters always need to be muddied a bit, right? Because it, it it we can always do that retroactive thing where we look back and we do see because there are seemingly two dominant sort of streams. This went this way doesn't mean everyone went that way, right? It's way it's always way more complex than that. But as we I mean, it almost strikes me as like our own little 20th century sort of version of pushing back against the Enlightenment. You know, like there were there were people who had always tried to reconcile their scientific views with their faith. And there were people who would always, you know, there was going to be fundamentalists on one side who would always say there's no room for that at all. Uh, on either side of that spectrum, probably some who would say there's no room for any of your faith in this. Yeah, it's always more, it's always more nuanced and more complicated than that. As we start to look at these groups, then... Because I also think about, like, say, say for example, one of the groups you mentioned in in your subtitle is liberal Christians, right? And so, at the at the risk of being anachronistic and saying, you know, bringing a 21st century understanding of what it means to be liberal, um, I'm thinking of people like in, you know, say in Germany in the Confessing Church, who were part of a of a of a liberal or a progressive theological movement, whose who saw themselves as the last vestiges of those who would push back against the Third Reich. Um, while the rest of the church just sort of fell in line with the state. Are those the kinds of liberals that end up getting pushed out and marginalized? Um, not necessarily just the social liberals, but also the maybe the theologically liberal? A, a bit, yes. And so it's interesting that you bring up this, this question of the, the confessing church, because I didn't do... I didn't do much with this in the book or the dissertation, but I could have. The, the confessing church and Bonhoeffer in particular are... A, fascinating case study in this kind of binary sorting of who fits in what category with 20th century U.S. Protestantism in particular, especially around everybody wants to claim Bonhoeffer, right? 
Uh, justifiably so, right? Like, Even the right wing nut jobs want to claim them, you know. This is right. This is this question is there. So I don't go with the confessing church specifically in terms of like in the book, but I do. There is a piece a little bit, I think, in the book, and I'm trying to remember exactly. Yeah, no, there's there is some of this, although I did have a big, a much longer chapter uh, that I had to cut about uh, Karl Barth. Which is an intri- which which is a fascinating was such a fascinating piece of the story that I wish I could have done more in the book, but I couldn't. I did a little bit around Bart gets classified as a theological liberal in twentieth century evangelical circles. Right, you get this reaction that Bart is denying the authority of the Bible and is evangelicals can't deal with Bart. There's a there's a few late, um, there's a few come along later in the puzzle who tried to get Bart reconsidered by evangelicals and it never works. So yes, there is this, there is this thing that happens in 20th century evangelicalism where the quickest way to get somebody kicked out is to, to successfully cast aspersions on their theological conservatism. All you got to do is paint somebody as a theological liberal in some capacity and that's that. That's all she wrote, right? And Bart is a classic example of this, in that, and it's such a complicated and fascinating figure in sorting 20th century Protestants anyway, because some of the evangelicals who would say, no, yeah, Bart is a liberal, there are others who are not evangelical who would agree with that assessment that Bart actually is liberal in certain capacities theologically. And so this is, Bart is a fascinating character. Meanwhile, in it, when Bart when Bart when Bart's work starts making headway in the U.S. context, uh, some of the reaction from more progressive theological figures is that Bart's basically a fundamentalist, uh, and so this is, a fa- this is a fascinating character that is I I did more of in the dissertation, but I touch on a little bit in that liberal in the chapter about liberal evangelicals because Bart fits in with that question of what can what can constitute capital E evangelical theology, right? That's a subtext that's going on with the book that is this debate over what it means to do evangelical theology as opposed to just Christian theology or Protestant theology. Well, then then you fast forward to today where who anyone who claims themselves as an evangelical, uh, first of all, they would say there's no such thing as a liberal evangelical. They, 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 that those, two, those two titles cannot converge into one. Uh, then it takes you into you know the the black evangelicals. So someone like say like Jesse Jackson, right, can't be evangelical because he's liberal and he's black. I mean, two things. He's got two strikes against him that says, okay, well, you're not truly evangelical because you're obviously liberal and you're obviously black. Uh, so you're not truly evangelical. So we can dismiss you out of hand. And then, so this is the beginning, and obviously Jesse Jackson's not the beginning of this, of, of removing any kind of uh, black theologian from this idea of evangelical or fundamentalist, right? Yeah, so this is, a, this is one of the pieces of the story that there is, I won't, I'll try not to go too in the academic, down too much of an academic wormhole here, but there is still a lot of work to be done, I would say, on 20th century fundamentalism, evangelicalism, and how that maps onto race, and both in the context of historic black traditions, but others as well. 
There are some folks who have started this kind of work. I hope that what I what I've done is a, a bit of an opening foray on some of this. But yes, this. So a couple of things in response to what you just said. One, if listeners, if you all have not read um, Edward Gilbraith's uh, Reconciliation Blues, this is a book that came out maybe ten years ago now. I don't remember exactly the dates. Ed Gilbreth was, uh, I think, one of the first, if not the first, black editors at Christianity Today. And he writes this book, Reconciliation Blues, about what it's like being a black Christian in capital E evangelical spaces. And he has this chapter in there about Jesse Jackson and what and his experience of trying to write a profile of Jesse Jackson for Christianity Today and how much flack he caught for that. And so this was an example of exactly what we're talking about here, right? This gatekeeping around who is in and who's out happens in subtle and not so subtle ways. And that, that is a prime example. Now, the, the folks who I, and I, and I talk about Ed Gilbreth's book and mention that in, in this book, but some of the folks that get profiled in the Black Evangelicals chapter are even their theological, theologically conservative bona fides are even better than Jesse Jackson's would be, and they still have trouble finding room in evangelical spaces across the 20th century. So you get somebody like William Bill Pinnell, who's this professor at Fuller that maybe not so many people uh, outside of certain aspects of evangelical circles would have heard of. But he's writing this. Uh, he's writing these books as far back as the 1960s. That is that says th- that are saying things. He's making claims like, "I checked all the right boxes. I am. I believe all of the things that you said I need to believe to fit in within a evangelical space. I'm. I don't belong in the." you know, theologically liberal tradition. This is my, this is my theological home. And yet every time something came up about race or about politics, especially for black Protestants who historically have aligned with the democratic party in, in certain, uh, past certain points in the 20th century in particular for obvious reasons. Um, anytime something comes up, they, in evangelical spaces, he would get poked, right? Tell us what your, your position is on, on those marches. What, what, how, how do you feel about those riots and, and, and the, disturbing the peace with uh, Martin, Luther, the Martin Luther King and those folks who are disturbing the peace and that kind of thing? And they would poke. He would, say, he would say, I meet all of your qualifications, and yet my faith is always in question around certain things because of my race. And this, he's writing these books in the 1960s, and they come out from evangelical presses, and it is written out of most of the histories that there were this um, this group of uh, radical black Christians in the 1960s and 70s who said, "No, we are evangelicals, capital E evangelicals," but there is not enough space for us in the white evangelical world because. They don't care about our people, and they don't care about us. And they and they there are there's a whiteness to the evangelical culture that the evangelical gatekeepers can't even they can't deal with it because they can't even see it. And you get these critiques coming out from certain black evangelical figures like Bill Pinnell, but also Tom Skinner in the 1960s and 1970s. So there's a there's a current kind of 
from my watching, I try to keep up with some of the stuff in current um, evangelical spaces. There's there's some reckoning around the racialization of evangelicalism right now, and part of what I'm trying to do in the book is saying the this happened a long way back. These folks just got forgotten. Well, it's interesting too because again, I'm, I, I lived through. You know, I'm, I was born in '71. Okay, so I lived through, you know, my conservative years as a young teen, early twenties, listening to people like Reverend Jesse Jackson be disparaged, not just disagreed with. That would have been, but 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 disparaged and denigrated and marginalized and had had their had their credentials as even Christians called into question. Even though I would, I would actually put Jesse Jackson, as much as I know of his theology, firmly in, in the conservative theological camp. If you go check off the boxes of, like you said, what it means to be a, a theologically conservative evangelical, I bet you he, I bet you he affirms most of that while being socially to the left, right? And saying, listen, I might, I might find myself over here. I didn't know what to do with that as a 20 something white evangelical, you know, I, I, I sadly, I parroted those accusations, you know. Sadly, I, I I was like, well, if they all say he's a piece of crap, he must be a piece of crap, you know. And listening to the schmucks like you know Rush Limbaugh, who you know would emphasize the reverend, you know, basically making fun of his status as a re- yeah, I, I don't know. It 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 is it, they did such a damn good job actually in the broader culture of casting these people in a certain light that it was hard to climb out from under that, you know. That has, and that you, you'll never convince me that that was not the plan. You know that that was not the plan to push them out. Of it. Sadly, it, it, I don't. It's it's not ended, right? I, well, no, uh, of course not. Uh, Nat and I had the the honor of hearing uh, uh, Miles McPherson speak at a at a conference in Vegas a few years ago, and I would say he's staunchly in the camp of what I would consider a an evangelical uh, evangelical pastor. But he told, he spoke on racism in the, the way that I've never heard. But because he's black, he's going to be pushed aside. We've had someone on our, on our podcast by the name of Albert Tate, who, again, I would put in the evangelical camp. Oh, yeah. Very but because, but because, but because he speaks on race, he's pushed aside, right? And then that moves us into even feminist theology, which is uh, we've had someone on here, uh, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, who is a you know very outspoken person about you know the race within and then within the the culture of women within theology and within the church. And I, I outside of very small circles, I don't think very many people even know who she was or is. Right. I mean, I shouldn't say was. I mean, she's still alive. And, and, <laughs> and they're wrong because they should know. Right. Or Christine, <laughs> you know, Christina yeah. Cleveland, who's someone else we've had on the podcast, again, speaking very openly about the power of women in church, specifically black women in church. And they are silenced. And so that opens this whole other can of worms, right? Where we, we, we create this scenario. We, we use Paul within the Bible, you know, incorrectly, in my opinion, to tell women to be quiet. And, and not to speak in church. And so again, remove them from history, right? Yeah. So this is the, and the, the, the point about um, disparaging, you know, talking heads disparaging uh, somebody's credentials as a Christian. There's a, a subthread of the book that is an argument around that that's, that evangelicalism 
and the evangelical movement in the 20th century U.S. context, because it is, uh, there's no official, it's not like the Catholic Church, right? There's not, there's not one official pope. It's this kind of, um, even, and scholars struggle to define evangelicalism because of, for this reason, right? It's this disestablished kind of thing that is, you know, the joke, the, uh, I, I think I made, I think this made it in past the, the editors in the book. It's, it's like the judge says about hardcore pornography, right? You know it when you see it. It's hard to define, but you just like, you can feel it. So the thing with evangelicalism is in the 20, part of the argument I make is that in the 20th century U.S. context, that this kind of disparaging of certain folks, that that's how the identity formation functions a lot of times in evangelical spaces because it's a competition sometimes for who can, who can outmaneuver their theological opponents in whatever the power struggle is in whatever given moment and paint them as insufficiently Christian, right? In, in these various debates. Um, so another way of thinking about the book beyond the subdivision of groups is around certain debates among evangelicals, right? Um, uh, over race or gender or sexuality or as we were um, uh, just speaking of around feminism, right? That you get a debate in the 60s, 70s, and 80s around uh, feminism in... Christian spaces and specifically in evangelical spaces. This is a forgot. This is also a forgotten piece of the puzzle that they uh, they got written out of the history. That there were these folks who said uh, in the, the with the rise of, uh, of 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 fights for women's equality in the in the U.S. context that said no, my uh, belief in the full equality of the sexes in the home and in the life of the church and in the world is fully reconcilable with my Christian faith. And so, yes, I am a feminist and I am an evangelical and there is no contradiction in, uh, in their thinking around these terms. But these folks got absolutely decimated by the rise of the, the complementarian stuff, right? Like this is a, this is the thing, um, in some ways, the chapter on evangelical feminism is the shadow side of um, Kristen Dumay's book. That is the you know the rise of this idea that um, of this close link between evangelical identity and this certain kind of like strongman stuff, this misogynistic kind of stuff. That is the uh, that Christianity, what it means to be a Christian in the U- in the contemporary U.S. context, means to be a manly man, and women need to remember their place. That stuff won out over the evangelical feminist movement. But there was a movement. There was a movement of evangel of self-identified evangelical feminists uh, that got absolutely uh, marginalized in the evangelical culture, and and they then subsequently in most cases, are written out of the history. That's not... There are folks who have written about them, and I, I acknowledge all of that in the book, but but they, in the kind of broader understanding of evangelical history, those folks are completely forgotten. That there was precedent for an evangelical feminist movement going back decades. Well, you know, for me, the, the, the other part that is frightening is that um, complementarianism sneaks in, Right. And now there are plenty of people firmly inside of the so-called, in the capital E, I, I like that phrase, by the way, in the capital E evangelical world who would claim they're feminists. 
And what they are is complementarians uh, masquerading, right? And so for me, that's the, that to me, that's a, that's a pretty good parallel. To me, they're like, they're like feminist version of separate but equal. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah, it's not, yeah. like, like you have your part to play and your role to play, but we'll never put you in charge of anything. Just know your place. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, this, this, this understanding, this gender essentialist understanding of what it means to be, uh, capital E evangelical. 100% caught on, right? This became, along with stuff like political conservatism, this understanding of uh, gender roles, this essentialist understanding of gender roles, uh, basically of like mid-century white suburban yeah. gender roles, yeah. actually, like the like, w- is written into um, what it means to be a Christian. And such that one can make an argument that like the defining debate of contemporary evangelical um, theology has been uh, the struggle for the folks who believe that that what it means to be Christian is to fulfill this mid-century uh, white gender roles. Those folks won the battle for evangelical theology, and so much of "quote unquote" evangelical theology, capital E evangelical theology, these days is just shoring up defenses of that notion. Right? Yeah. That, yeah. that. that uh, there, it's like apologetics for mid-century gender roles. Uh, oh that man, that, that that's yeah. what that's what the purpose of evangelical theology arguably has become in many spaces is is making sure that you uh, that all of our uh, theological points align in defense of that, uh, and that didn't come from nowhere, right? Like this is um, the folks who were some of the original. Uh, founders of the whole idea of complementarianism were very explicit about what they were doing. They were trying to fight feminism. They were trying to run feminists out of the church and specifically out of evangelical spaces. They had a sense, they knew that there were uh, this kind of, that there was this rising sentiment of, of feminist beliefs in evangelical spaces and they were very angry about that. And so they found this movement to fight back against it. And so much of the, um, De- current debates over complementarianism, I feel like in my sense of those debates are out of touch with the history of where this thing came from, such that you get folks who would be pushing back against that uh, in some ways who um, have little sense that there were predecessors who were making arguments around, like specifically, explicitly evangelically feminist arguments, which is the, the chapter on evangelical feminists tries to bring some of that forward. So we were we were kind of discussing the uh, the rise of of complementarianism as a way of pushing back against the sort of rise of feminism, right? Which was almost like I felt like that was the capital E evangelicals sneaky, not so sneaky in retrospect, but at the time sort of sneaky way of saying, no, 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 we're feminists. We uh we we affirm the role of women, and then quickly relegating them to the handful of specific roles that they were happy with them being in, right? Yeah. So it's it's interesting you say that because the um and I and I don't I don't doubt that in certain spaces that 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 kind of maneuver would happen. But one of the things I end up saying with the feminist chapter is for the gate the majority of the like big gatekeeping folks are in evangelical spaces. The at least in my read of the sources and the the story I end up uh, constructing there in the book um, or reconstructing, 
feminism is a dirty word. So oh, it's absolutely, not, it, it's yeah. not, it's not even the case. Many would not say, never say that, oh, here, that we're feminist because feminism is evil and feminism is unchristian and there's feminists are ruining the family. Now, the support of something like, yes, we affirm the, um, spiritual equality of women as created equal in the eyes of God. Right. They're, but, but, right, that's the, that's the move I, I have seen in, the, in many of the sources around the complementarianism stuff, right? But women also can't do X, Y, Z. Right. And it's very rarely men can't do X, Y, Z. It's women can't do X, Y, Z. Right, well... Um, and having not read the source material, I'm speaking completely from uh, just how I sense that, that 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 reminds me or it's reminiscent of, of conversations that might have been had by people who still wanted to keep African-Americans in a particular place. Listen, we recognize the value of you as a human. We think God loves you. We're pretty sure that he values you the same. However, you're not equipped to do this, this, this or this. Let's all stay in our lanes here, right? There definitely is uh, some of that that happens around segregation in evangelical spaces in the 20th century that um, you get these folks writing in places like Christianity Today affirming that, uh, yeah, um, that we don't hate black people. We just believe that cultures should stay intact, right? That, fo- that people should be able to affiliate with their own culture and that that should not be a problem in defense of uh, maintaining segregationist status quo. This kind of thing does happen in uh, certain evangelical spaces. Now, this is also the, all of this is the big major caveats that I, all, that, that I also hope the book does introduce that is not just, you know, these big, bad, evil, white evangelical gatekeepers because there were folks who pushed back. Now, they mostly lost, (laughs) but they were, but they were there. And I, and I don't want to lose that aspect of these stories. And in some of the, um, um, the chapter about uh, politically progressive evangelicals, for instance, the, the, the Alexander family is this, the start, start the magazine that becomes the other side. They are white fundamentalists who have this kind of awakening around racism and try to push back. But to, to your, your point about uh, separate but equal kind of thing, yeah, that, that, that certainly, the, there, you could apply that notion of separate but equal to um, complementarianism, right? This idea that, uh, 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 oh yeah, women are obviously equal before the eyes of God, and but except that that ideology be won the day in evangelical spaces. And I know that there, there are certainly folks who are still out there working in those spaces trying to push back against that, but they have their work cut out for them. Yeah, and uh, like you said, yeah, and historically speaking, they tend to lose, right? Complementarianism, like, was like wildfire. It, it, it's, uh, you know, it emerges in like the '90s, and then very quickly becomes like the major game in town in the evangelical world in terms of like marriage and family stuff. Um, and it was the hot thing, right? And a lot of it was associated with the rise of the kind of young restless reform stuff and all of that. Um, 
And it was never a secret that what this thing was, the rise of complementarianism, was anti-feminist. That was its whole reason for existence, was to, to make sure that uh, they were fighting the scourge of feminism because it was creeping into their safe evangelical churches. That They were very explicit about that that's what they were doing. Um, and in retro, retroactively, some of these folks who were evangelical feminists, I think, get forgotten in a lot of these debates. Well, what's interesting to me, too, is, is, is it seems like we're then on the push for, it seems like evangelicals, again, capital E, are always on the lookout for the next acceptable group to marginalize, right? So let us rally around an issue. So whether it be, I remember people speaking out against the Equal Rights Amendment in the 70s and the 80s, that was a big deal. We could rally against that brand of feminism. Abortion becomes a pivotal issue for evangelicals at some point because the race issue is a, is a, it's no longer a winner, right? You're going to have to move off that. You're going to be way more subtle about your racism in the future. You'll be every bit as racist, but you're going to have to be more subtle about it. Um, so we can begin to rally around abortion as something, well, you know, that's, that's, an, and then I remember distinctly this rise of this, 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 this talk about traditional families. So this was the, this was to me was the, was the natural consequence of the moral majority and all of these guys pushing so-called moral ethical into the preservation of the traditional American family, which I then think segues into how atrocious we've been to the LGBTQ community. Yeah, so this is one of the, in that, that chapter about gay evangelicals is one of the, is one of my favorite chapters because it's one of the things that has been written about the least. Although I will, fla- I will flag one, I do have to um, be on the lookout. There is a dissertation coming from a Princeton uh, PhD student named William Stell, who's a friend of mine, about gay evangelical activism in the uh, 70s and 80s, I believe, is, is his focus. Be on the lookout for that. He will have done a much more even thorough job than I, I have done. But that's, so this is one of my favorite chapters and what ends up happening uh, with that aspect of the story is yes, there is the there is this rise of this understanding of the traditional family as an important thing for evangelicals to defend, and it becomes a kind of hallmark of what it means to be evangelical. Meanwhile, th- and this is this is where the um, to the back to the point about this kind of binary thinking with 20th century Protestantism, um, the idea usually goes uh, in the binary sorting that um, all of the mainline denominations debated homosexuality, and I do homosexuality and scare quotes there because you know whether or not that was actually what the only thing they were talking about, and or because it you know this is a is a pathologizing term that the LGBTQ community does not tend to use, so I'd scare quote that. But it's, it's called the homosexuality debates. This is how they get described, right? And the, main, by the binary sorting by religion scholars tends to say, oh yeah, mainline liberal Protestants debated, had all of these debates over uh, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, um, ordination of gay and lesbian priests and pastors, and evangelicals don't have this uh, debate at all. There's something to that, but it's not the whole story. It's more complicated than that, of course, right? And one of the ways that it's more complicated than that is, 
is in the fact that there were folks who were gay and evangelical, both. And they said, I am gay and I'm an evangelical. And I don't see a problem with reconciling my faith in Jesus or affirmation of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, and my interpretation of a few passages, uh, a differing interpretation than the majority, you know, the majority evangelical gatekeeping thing. And these folks, the fact that this was a debate in evangelical spaces, that there were like debates going on as far back as the 70s over what the evangelical position on homosexuality, quote unquote, would be, is completely written out of the histories of evangelicalism because evangelical, capital E, evangelicalism, um, for many reasons, rightfully earns this reputation as, you know, virulently anti-gay. And it's a deserved reputation, uh, but it didn't have, it wasn't, oh, it's never monolithic, right? So since you have dissent, you have these folks like um, this, uh, this guy who I profile in the chapter, Ralph Blair, who starts this organization decades ago called Evangelicals Concerned uh, that is a explicitly pro-gay and explicitly evangelical organization uh, that's there to support, uh, at the time, they f- was framed around gay and lesbian folks in evangelical circles. And it just upends uh, the usual understandings of uh, the story of what it means to be evangelical because these people exist. And this guy was writing into Christianity Today all the time, trying to fight the rise of the ex-gay movement, which is a thing I go into in the chapter, um, such that the way to be gay and evangelical that emerges is to be ex-gay. Right, right. Evangelical, I right? once and was this, lost, but now I'm found. This Glory is it. To God, this, right? this, this becomes the answer to a recognition that happens at some point that, surprise, surprise, evangelical get, kids can be gay too. Sure. Uh, so, so you have evangelical, you have these kids who are in evangelical, and I say kids because, you know, tragically, the ex-gay movement uh, ended up targeting youth a lot. Um, but... You get kids, uh, you get people in evangelical churches who they, oh, surprise, surprise, they just so happen to be gay. It's not an out, it can't be relegated to an out there problem. You know, oh, the, the that's those worldly folks have, you know, or those um, apostate liberal denominations debating homosexuality. Uh, us over here in the safety evangelical church don't have to deal with that. Well, that what they eventually did. And the ex-gay movement in many ways was the answer, uh, was the evangelical answer, um, except there were there was dissent. There were folks who said, um, no, I believe having a uh, lifetime committed monogamous relationship between two men is not contradictory with my affirmation of belief in the Bible or uh, uh, of my evangelical identity even. Um, and then you get the uh, the other the other piece of the puzzle. I didn't get to do as much with um, uh, this, and I, I hope somebody will soon be working on a biography. But somebody like Troy Perry is this fascinating Pentecostal minister who's who's gay and Pentecostal, and he is Pentecostal and doesn't stop being Pentecostal whenever he comes out. Right? Like this is so you have this what scholars and observers, popular and scholarly, tend to, I, tend to paint Pentecostal traditions as 
evangelical and theologically conservative, and yet you have these folks who they defy the binaries that we try to put on these traditions. And it's not, and it's not even just in single individuals. You have, um, in many of the cases that I recount, whole movements, but they get marginalized and written out of the story. Mm. Uh, I, I just want to kind of see if I can bring all this together into one like big question. So this idea that women aren't allowed to preach, right, or allowed to have any kind of leadership in church, I always found it very interesting that one of the places that women were, and again, Eric was relegated to was Sunday school. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to paint a picture here of this, like, okay, so you have this liberally minded or progressive minded woman teaching Sunday school and she starts to, you know, giving little topics here and there that don't really fit within the church mold, but it's things that she thinks are important for these children to hear. So move that forward. And now we move into what we call this deconstruction movement. So could we make an argument that the evangelicals have actually created this deconstruction movement by allowing women to be in position so to raise up the next generation to have an open mind to things like racism homophobic ideas. And so that's why we're seeing these droves of people leaving the church saying, my my idea of what is okay and not okay isn't the same as yours anymore. And did could they could we make an argument that they've kind of they kind of did it to themselves almost? It's an it's an interesting question. I don't know that I would have the evidence to make the claim that there are that it would be that it could be traced back to women teaching, which actually the concert the uh, many of the conservative gatekeepers would love if that was the case, or or they would love the argument in, because they could say, oh yeah, women teach it. When women teach, this is what happens, right? So it would um, they that could be used to fuel fuel their argument. Now that that being said, it certainly is the case that there have always been. Um, regardless of the fact that they uh, were marginalized and were, uh, especially in cap- the capital E evangelical spaces, were so frequently told that they could not be leaders and preachers, um, that evangelical women showed up. Without evangelical women, there would not have been a 20th century evangelical movement. Uh, and evangel- the ter- evangelical churches, um, I think the sociology still holds here, are predominantly full of evangelical women. So without, you know, if evangelical women just all decided to up and leave, that would, that would cripple the movement. But it is the case, especially as when you identify teaching as the place that, um, uh, you know, evangelical women are quote unquote relegated. That was, that was certainly a phenomenon in 20th century evangelical spaces where women could teach, but not preach, right? Women could be teachers in certain evangelical spaces, but not preachers. So education in many senses, in many spaces and in many instances in 20th century evangelical history became the kind of provenance of women. And without women teachers, you wouldn't have many Sunday schools and many of the various ways that evangelicals have been educated across the 20th century. Now, the, to, if there is, uh, if I have seen any kind of kernel of truth to, to your, your theory here, around deconstruction stuff, it certainly, there certainly are high profile 
um, women leaders in those spaces who are doing education, who are doing popular education, saying, uh, you know, I this is not the only way to interpret the Bible. And you don't have to listen. You don't have to accept what your male pastor says is uh, the only place for women. That certainly is currently happening. I don't know that I would say that it would be, uh, that we could attribute it to uh, the teaching of women because also so many women did, there's plenty of complementarian women who, who defend who defend that ideology as rigorously or more so than the, the male leaders. Um, in the, the rise of complementarian stuff, um, I write a little bit about this in uh, the evangelical feminist chapter. You get folks like the Maribel Morgans and Elizabeth Elliots of evangelicalism were the star-shining women because uh, in part of what they defended, which was that women are supposed to be wives and mothers. And that is the Christian view, and you get with the rise of complementarianism, Elizabeth Elliot writes chapters for the, you know, the big, um, the Piper Grudem founding texts of, um, the Piper Grudem founding texts of complementarianism include stuff uh, uh, by um, Elizabeth Elliot rigorously defending traditional gender roles as the appropriate thing. Yeah, honestly, Uh, without those women, I don't think it, it gets as far down the road as it does. 100%. I mean, they 100% add legitimacy to that, right? 100%. Um, to say, listen, yeah. I, otherwise, it just sounds like men beating their chests. But all of a sudden, you've got a bunch of women going, no, 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 this is this is the way we're designed and this is the way we're made. And and trust me, we're happy here. Like, there, you know. That, right. With Without a... Uh, uh, a veritable army of complementarian women that it would not have it would not have caught on like wildfire in the way that it did. Now, if you had that if you had that same group of people back in the abolition days, you, we still have slavery because there'd be there'd be a handful of people going, "Well, you know, listen, we're you know, I'm I'm, I'm being a, a bit absurdist, but 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 I think the logic is still there. I mean, you are literally fighting against your own self interests. Well, um, you, you, you know, you don't have to. You, you see someone like Beth Moore, right, who has the audacity to step outside of the the the, the quote unquote norm of and evangelicalism. She ever so gently has stepped. Yes, out. and she's. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. She's lamb based. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Beth Moore in any stretch of the imagination. But she makes you know, she makes one small step away from what we consider is this contemporary version of what evangelicalism is, and she is destroyed by all the men around her. Yeah. The only thing saving her right now is the level of her celebrity is enough to, to, to maintain her. But she had the, uh, I, I haven't found many of her statements to be outlandish. You know, she had the audacity to say things like, you know, maybe Donald Trump is not, not, not the best choice for role model. You know, maybe he's not the most moral person, you know, and she has not, to, to my knowledge, has not disavowed like very many fundamentally evangelical tenets. I mean, she's still staunchly fundamentalist. Beth Moore is a fascinating example of the functioning of what I'm talking about in the book, right? That someone can check all of the boxes and something comes up that is the new de facto orthodoxy on a matter. And if you step out of line on that, it doesn't matter that you've checked all the other boxes. All of a sudden, your faith is questioned and your legitimacy is questioned and you are 
you are, they try to push you to the side. Now, the problem with trying to push Beth Moore to the side is Beth Moore is arguably one of the most influential religious teachers of the last generation. Yeah, exactly. If you look at sheer numbers of people that Beth Moore has taught the Bible, it is hard. It would be hard to match the level of influence that Beth Moore has had. And that is another complicating irony of this whole thing around evangelicalism because she always, to my knowledge, never did it under the presumption that what she was doing was preaching. Yeah. Right? She was teaching. Exactly. She was teaching. She And had yeah. a massive influence far outpacing many of these male evangelical gatekeepers. Um, and yet, right, still, for, to my understanding, has never disavowed any of the things that would constitute the, like a, any theological definition of what it means to be evangelical. From my understanding, Beth Moore has never crossed that line. And yet, in so many spaces, became kind of persona, persona non grata because of her willingness to step afoul of the, pre- the prevailing political orthodoxy and cultural orthodoxy around, from my understanding, challenging, Donald, challenging folks who were supporting Donald Trump, but also stuff that she, would challenge, that she would spoke out around the massive sexual abuse epidemic in evangelicalism. When she becomes, you know, becomes this defining characteristic that, okay, if she's not safe, no one's safe. If you can run afoul of the prevailing orthodoxy, if she can by, by, you know, small degrees stepping outside from that thing, man, I, I, I don't know, man, I, that, to me, that, that just speaks of the, of the power of that, of that group, you know, that says, okay, you will toe the line. And even someone like Beth Moore, who was immensely popular, I, again, she, had she been someone of less, uh, there have been others who've stepped out who've just been, like you said, you've noted, have just been decimated. Well, and then the most recent one, right, is uh, the darling of the of the Christian music industry, you know, Amy Grant. Right? Oh, they kicked her to the curb a long time ago, right. John, though, because she but got not, divorced. Yeah, but she, she, you know, unfortunately, and again, it quotes, crawled her way back into the loving graces of the evangelical movement. Um, but then she had the audacity to say that she would be she performed. She's performing, right? The, no, the, she's the, going to allow her niece, who is who is um, gay, a lesbian, yeah. to be married on her property. Oh, that. Oh, okay. She's, so she's, she's not even officiating. She's hosting a wedding for her gay niece, and you you would have thought that she was the antichrist. And again, I I guarantee you, if she was to check all the boxes, well, for a long time she did check all the boxes, and then she got and then she got divorced. This is the functioning of the the. It's a the Amy Grant thing. The the recent Amy Grant thing, from my understanding of it, was a prime example of the functioning of evangelical culture warring, right? Yep, exactly and how it, and how it functions, but also how it shapes evangelical identity, right? This is this is part of the argument that this book that I that my book is making is that that kind of thing where somebody checks whatever boxes, but then all of a sudden there's one box that at a certain time you cannot check or right. you cannot uncheck you can that uncheck box. You uncheck that box, right? Yeah. Because if you do, all the rest of the boxes all of a sudden don't matter. And that though they follow this kind of, another you know thread of the book is that these things, 
like it's waves. It comes in ebbs and flow in ebb and flow things, right? Such that right now it is around LGBTQ stuff, right? That is the the line drawing definitively. Specifically, it seems in um, evangelical spaces around uh, issues of transgender folks, right? That that has become the a most recent scare tactic thing that is like anybody who has anything less than extremely condemnatory to say about trans folks all of a sudden may not be a real Christian. That is the functioning of uh, part of what this book argues is that that kind of thing is how evangelical identity formation has functioned for a long time. In part because it is so... Because there is no official roster, right? You can't... It's not like the Catholic Church. You can't say... There is no official teaching, so you get these kind of self-appointed gatekeepers who see it as their duty to protect what it means to be evangelical. And they're always... To, to one of your... Made the point uh, uh, earlier, there, there's... It, it does... It, if it seems like there's always uh, looking for the next heresy hunt, it's because it is. Yeah, yeah. You must okay. defend the walls... Right. And in, in order to defend those walls, you have to have something to defend against. Right. So it seems like um, they're always on the lookout for the next um, the next threat. Right. Evangelical identity has been has been defined as much, probably more by what it's against than what it's for. Right. I am seeing in general more more, not not enough, but more, more, more of a comfort level of people that I associate. Anecdotally, I can say, the people in my Christian circles are becoming way more comfortable with acceptance of gay and lesbian Christians, but they are absolutely not budging on this trans thing. So there's, and I, and I, to your point, that that's that's that seems to be like why we're making this slow shift towards okay. All right, I understand that that people, you know, don't have any control over their sexual identity. It's wrong to to exclude and marginalize them for things they have no control over, but in their minds, I swear dude, they still think that all these trans people are just making these conscious choices. They woke up one day and just decided they didn't want to be a boy anymore. And they cannot wrap their head around that, you know? That's fa- it's fascinating. That's not something that I I have seen it's not something that I have identified in, you know, from my stuff writing around this that I that I've seen happen. I don't doubt it. I I 100% am sure. But that's fascinating that, to to hear uh, that there is. I know that there has been growing acceptance even among self-identified evangelicals of same gender loving relationships, same sex marriage, even um, especially among younger. Evangelicals and Christian, you know, Christians broadly. This is a thing that is uh, uh, much less of an issue for them, in part because they grew up around gay and lesbian folks. Right now, this I have not seen that dynamic of specifically those who are becoming more "quote unquote" affirming. Uh, you know, to use the the, the traditional language, um, reacting against trans folks in in those particular circles but I don't doubt it because that would that is the you know 
trans trans people are being used. You know, this here. If I if if you know, I will uh, not get to maybe maybe this is the my, my little political moment. Uh, trans people are being used as a political pawn and scare tactic, and so it sounds like it, that it would be even working among. Uh, to me, it seems like the. I mean, again, there has to always be a boogeyman or a boogie person. We'll 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 take away the gender specifics, but there has to be somebody or something that has that 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 is the next big thing that's gonna that's gonna take down. You know, John and I are old enough to have lived through so many of these. You know, you know, got to be on the lookout for barcodes because that's the sign of the beast, and you're gonna be taken. You know, so we didn't want. You know, Johnson and Johnson was the devil because they wanted to stamp everybody with barcodes. Apparently, you know. The uh, what's the guy from Microsoft? Bill, no, I can see. I can see. Forgot to say, Bill Gates is going to insert a microchip. You know, the the vaccines are going to come along, and you know, so much of it's weirdly, it weirdly lends itself to conspiratorial thinking, which I've always found to be a little. But I think that's because of that constant awareness that you need an enemy, and if you don't, ha- if you don't have one, then create one. Right? There's this thing that I, there is this. Through line in 20th century evangelicalism, and I, I think I, I think I bring this out a little bit in the book of a, a, a recurring theme of a kind of Manichaean worldview where there is good and there is evil. Specifically, there's a good side and an evil side, and we evangelicals are the good side, and. There is the evil side out there, and it gets defined in various battles and in various eras in different ways. The world, right? The you know, out there in the world, that that's a, a very evangelical idiom, right? right. We don't want to be worldly, right? That's it, right? Yeah. The, it's the um, you don't want to be like the world because the world is evil. Those feminists, socialists, those liberal Hollywood elites, liberal, right? No, no, right? This is <laughs> yeah. this is uh, this is a primary way that it has. Functions even beyond and prior to the explicit partisan politicization of it, such that the initial defining feature of the what became the 20th century evangelical movement was to define evangelicals as the true Christians, as opposed to those you know backslid those backslidden ecumenical liberal Christians who aren't real Christians. That's how it started. Uh, and and a, an argument can be made that when you when the when a movement starts like that, how well, maybe we should not be so surprised that it reverts to that um, to that tactic of defining itself uh, against the other. Yeah, it's it's to me. It's I mean, all of this, all of this is fascinating, man. I appreciate so much um, the, the what you've written, and I and uh, it all it, it dovetails nicely with conversations that John and I have been having. So I, I hope that, that, I hope that, that helps a little bit because I think these conversations are beginning to happen more. Um, and that's encouraging to me. And at least in our spaces, in our circles, we're, um, we're looking for those voices who are going to, um, delineate that for us a little bit better and, um, not just give us an enemy to attack. I'm not interested in just attacking evangelicals, but I am interested in having the conversations where people in my evangelical circles will say, Okay, okay, I recognize there's some truth to this. And there's just, yeah, there's just so much there. So I appreciate so much. Um, we're going to wrap it up because, uh, uh, there's a national championship football game on and I'm going to go watch it. But, uh, <laughs> go, go horned frogs. <laughs> when this airs, it will be so dated, but, um, yeah. <laughs> um, we, we're going to link to all your stuff in the show notes. We'll encourage everyone to, uh, to buy the book when it comes out. Don't pre-order it because, uh, 
Uh, we want to buy it on the day it comes out, so it cranks it up to the Amazon top of the bestseller list. We've learned that little piece from Keith Giles. Thanks, Keith. For, uh, yeah, if, if you didn't know that, pre-sales don't count towards your Amazon ranking. So encourage people to buy the book when it's actually available. You, you can sell a million copies in pre-order and it won't it won't count because Amazon is down. Be on the lookout. It's uh, coming in April uh, from Erdman's. And uh, I guess the the line is available where all books are sold, you know, wherever books are sold. Yeah. Well, and yeah, your book will be everywhere, man. I can't wait to see it on the... uh, Last time we had an author on, uh, Kristen Dumais on, and literally the next week, she was on the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. Correlation, not, causation, I don't know. I'm, I, not, I'm, not saying we, I'm not saying we did it, but I'm not saying you can't prove we didn't do it. So uh, okay. it also could be that her book is amazing and okay, whatever. But um, anyway, this is, uh, again, thank you so much for the conversation, man. I really appreciate your insights. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.